Hello, and welcome to the ADE Spotlight Podcast. My name is Jim Haggerty. As a provider of substance abuse assessments and client management databases, we have the privilege to work with terrific partners across the United States and Canada. In this series, we plan to talk to some of our colleagues about their work in the field of substance abuse assessment, prevention, and treatment. By sharing knowledge and experiences, it is my hope that we can all learn from each other. What we have learned, what the challenges are now and in the future, and how the ever-evolving technology impacts our work. ADE remains committed to working with our partners and using our experience with both substance use assessment and technology to provide the tools our colleagues rely on. As we learn from each other, we improve the value of our services. Hello and welcome to our podcast. I am very excited this afternoon. Our very special guest is my very own sister, Linda. And today we'll be talking about a subject that I know something about, but not nearly enough. And I'm very excited to learn more. Today we're, we're going to be talking about fetal alcohol syndrome. And uh, my sister, Linda, has been kind enough to join us. And uh, I know from previous conversations with you, Linda, that you know quite a bit about this subject. So I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, learning more. And I think the listeners of this podcast uh, will be very interested in what you have to say. Can you, uh, just by way uh, of introduction, maybe uh, tell the folks a little bit about uh, uh, yourself and, and, and how you've come to learn as much as you have about uh, fetal alcohol syndrome? I'm glad to. things, you know, in terms of impulse control and 
cause and effect and things that are commonly um, compromised in a child with fetal alcohol. And I've been fortunate enough to work with therapists, also experts, um, and I've been able to present on this topic at conferences, et cetera. So self-learning from experts is really my background. And then it's more about what we went through or are going through, you know, I guess the experience. I, I've learned most of it from experience. Well, I th- that, that may be true, but I, I want the listeners to know as well that you have an extensive medical background yourself. You you talk about uh, presenting at conferences and you talk about participating in these studies. You maybe just talk briefly about your own medical background that you bring to this beyond uh, just the experience of being the mother of these three boys. Well, thank you. I am, um, I am a master's prepared nurse. My specialty was in the area of organ transplant, actually, but I think it's really more about, you know, the ability to learn. I hope I had some extra ability to ask questions that helped us learn as well. And as we were going through this and the kids needed different things, to have that knowledge to talk to the physicians that we ended up seeing, you know, to talk to the specialists that we ended up seeing, et cetera. So... Beyond, uh, of course, just being my sister and welcoming the opportunity to talk to you, I I think it's clear that you are uh, uniquely qualified to talk about this subject. I I mentioned to somebody that we were going to to have this conversation, do this podcast, and I mentioned that we were going to talk about fetal alcohol syndrome, and she echoed, I think, the very thing that I would say, and that is, I've heard of fetal alcohol syndrome. I have some idea of what it is, but that's about it. That's about the extent of my knowledge. So let's start there, Linda. How would you describe fetal alcohol syndrome to somebody like me who has heard of it but doesn't really know what it is? I think the first two words that come into my mind are preventable because it is, and it is, in fact, the only preventable cause while she's pregnant. 
going to be impacted, is likely to be impacted. If someone drinks every day, every system in the child's body is likely to be affected in one way or another. Now, when was fetal alcohol syndrome identified, this issue identified? And I'm thinking about back uh, to previous generations, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, when pregnant uh, women may have may have drank, uh, may have smoked, and uh, and may have had uh, babies that were affected, but maybe this wasn't known. It certainly wasn't called fetal alcohol syndrome. How did when when did this become uh, an identifiable and, and treatable issue? Um, it really in the 1970s, actually in France, is when it was um, made. Right, but the behavior and the experiences and the clinical challenges have been around for a long time. Um, in fact, I'm just um, pulling out something that I can look and give some historical piece in terms of some of the famous people. So if you give me a minute there while we're talking, I will look that up. But it was identified or named, like I said, in 1970s in France when trying to understand what was going on with you know a certain population of kids and you say a certain population of kids uh how, how does this manifest itself is there a, a common set of behaviors that might point toward fetal alcohol syndrome there's a couple things there are look there are physical characteristics that are common most most common when the mother drinks in the first trimester because that's when that piece is developing, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so they have, you know, we have, if you go like, they have thin toplets, and what the, kind of those two lines from your lips to the bottom of your nose, that's called the philtrum, that will be very non-obvious or not even there. So those, their ears are set low, their nose tends to be flatter at the bridge, um, may also be kind of upturned and short, they tend to have smaller heads, microencephaly it's called, um, so when you go to the pediatrician and measure their head, it's going to be, you know, low on the head circumference growth chart, so we see that, and there's a couple other things, certain things about the eyes or whatever, and so that's very diagnostic. In addition to that, there are behaviors that as a child ages show that there's definitely impact in the brain because the central nervous system affects. We have poor growth. We have children who are very low on the growth chart for the most part. Um, And a lot of it does, like I said, depend on where the damage happens. In many cases, Two, you can look at a CT scan of the brain. And the kids who have the most brain damage, there's a certain thing called in the brain called the corpus callosum, and it's kind of really the channel between the right and the left brain. And that can be narrowed, obstructed, or non-existent, all of which point to more significant cognitive disorders. And that can be seen on a CAT scan? It can be. If, it, if that is an abnormality that that particular child 
child has. Um, I've only had one of my children have a CAT scan, and it is very obvious that, you know, his is narrowed. And the challenge is that the alcohol can damage all different parts of the brain. So, for example, we have our what's called the prefrontal cortex. That's where we think. That's where we logically plan it, our behavior called executive function. That's how we know how to organize, um, et cetera. Significantly compromised. In fact, we, we often talk about helping the kids with executive function skills by being their external brain because they can't think through logically what's going to make sense. The hippocampus affects memory. The corpus callosum that I was just talking about is critically important for integrating information, so for right and left. And we also think it may be um, ADHD is very common as a comorbidity with fetal alcohol, so there may be physical changes that contribute to that ADHD as well. It affects the limbic system, which is the emotion. It affects the basal ganglia, which is motor coordination. And again, think of it as a continuum or a spectrum. Different parts are affected more than the other. Each child is affected differently. These, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that there may be some physical characteristics. Are, is this identifiable, say, in an ultrasound while the, while the child is still in utero? But one, once the child is born and they're being seen by a pediatrician, these may physical characteristics may be something that a, a pediatrician might identify. Um, I'm glad you said may because it should be, but it's also something that's not thought about very much today, still, and even amongst pediatricians. So it's a misdiagnosis. We didn't have it diagnosed for. Um, well over a year, um, and that's even when we went for another reason to the children's hospital for a treatment for something else, never made the diagnosis. What, what is the most common uh, misdiagnosis? Um, ADHD, uh, mental retardation, unknown cause, hmm. learning disabilities, unknown cause, impulsivity, it, I mean, there's just a lot of anxiety, etc. They're just going to look at. There's also a lot of their um, data shows that a lot of them had epilepsy as well. I don't know that or have experienced that, but a comorbid condition. Now, is this a, uh, is, is fetal alcohol syndrome the actual diagnosis? Is this what I would find in, say, the, uh, the DSM-5? Fetal alcohol syndrome is an umbrella term, it also indicates that the child has physical characteristics as well as neurodevelopmental, cognitive, emotional compromises, etc. If the child doesn't have those facial dysmorphologies that I've talked about, the facial changes, maybe the mother started drinking a little bit later, so it's not that obvious they might have what is called fetal alcohol effect, FAE, or another is alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder. 
right? So a lot depends on where they are in the spectrum. Does your research tell you anything about um, the average age at which a child is diagnosed or or is there some uh, sort of expected pattern of behavior to to uh, to where it might become obvious that this may be an issue or does it just vary from child to child? Um, I think the answer is is really both. Um, so, I mean, some of the things will start very early in terms of, you know, what the kids will be doing. They, they may, um, you know, they prematurity, low birth rate, irritability. There is um, a thing called neonatal withdrawal syndrome where the kids are so sensitive to any stimulus. And they may have tremors and they may have poor sleep patterns, feeding difficulties. Typically in the first year, a child is going to not want to be touched. They tend to look away, not have eye contact. Um, difficult to console when they start crying, etc. So there are things that a parent would say something is really going on. They might not develop they might not start baby talk as soon as another child about the same age would. They might not sit at the same time, walk at the same time. So those kinds of things will typically take a parent for some type of evaluation. Well, I would imagine, though, uh, a scenario where you see those things and, and the parent says something here isn't right and the parent takes a child for the evaluation. But at some point in that evaluation, then the specialist is going to turn to the parent and say, tell me about your drinking during pregnancy. And at that point, I, I would imagine that puts up a big roadblock, uh, I would imagine, in many cases, because I can't imagine the mother uh, is going to be very forthcoming in some cases uh, with her use of alcohol, and, and is that a barrier to diagnosis and a barrier to treatment? It is, and new guidelines were actually just published, and one of the guidelines for diagnosis includes a history of drinking on the part of the mother. How do we get that information? It, and obviously it has to be done so that the mother feels that she can trust, right? So you have to be asked very carefully, there is no guarantee that they will tell the truth about their history, include drinking or um, how much they drink, right? It can be underestimated. But with that's all you have to go on is trying to get that information and explaining why it's so important. We need to name what's going on so that the intervention can be tailored appropriately. It would, it would sort of logically follow to me anyway then that that there must be some preventative uh, component included in prenatal care now, maybe that that wasn't there in previous generations. You know, Jim, this is really one of the things that is still crazy. I even today, you hear from a pregnant mom that her obstetrician said, oh, "A glass of wine or two is not going to hurt you." So more and more trying to get the word out, but uh, there's, it's just still not talked about enough. Interesting. I, I think we've all seen that um, 
as you know, I, I currently have a pregnant daughter and she has been told that it would be okay to have a glass of wine. I was reading an article yesterday uh, that talked about women and drinking and, and the relationship between women and, and wine. And, and, and uh, a woman was uh, expressing how she was told that, uh, oh, it's okay, you're in the eighth or ninth month of your pregnancy, so it's far enough along that you can have a glass of wine. So I, I can see uh, uh, where you're coming from when you talk about that uh, still happening yet today. Some of the research, I mean, the bottom line is, why take the chance? And this is my opinion. Why take a chance? Because any alcohol use during pregnancy, it can potentially cause toxicity and damage to that part of the brain, whatever was developing. Um, there are, There is research that, you know, what does one drink a week do? What does moderate to heavy drinking do? I think the answer is still the same. Why take the chance? Well, let's move forward now then. Let's assume here we have we have a child who is of a certain age and is starting to manifest some of these behaviors. And through the course of investigation, uh, it, it's decided that they may have fetal alcohol syndrome. What, what then is the, or is there a standard course of treatment? It, it is not curable. It is permanent, lifelong damage. Early intervention to work with some of the, um, the impacts. I talked about executive function, for example, helping a child at that, at whatever age developmentally they are, to problem solve. Right? So you start with interventions. It, working memory is very poor. Right? So they can't remember things. They can, they can know, for example, this is a young child, say, in first or second grade, they can know today that 2 plus 2 is 4. Tomorrow they will have no clue. That working memory um, is challenged. So you start interventions on memory. We start interventions on helping them self-regulate. A child can go from 0 to 100, say, and can't bring themselves to come back. They need to have the intervention of jumping on a little trampoline or, you know, whatever. You've got to figure out what works for your child. So that kind of intervention, the earlier it starts, the better. And if there is early intervention, an appropriate early intervention, I know you say there there is no cure, but can there be progress? Absolutely. And it depends on, again, where they are on that continuum, right? So there can be, but ADHD is still going to be a problem that has to be treated. Um, some kids find ways to kind of reroute that communication in the brain and can compensate for whatever their developmental delay is or challenge. So yes in some things, no in some things. Um, I can say, for example, I don't think one of my sons will ever be able to look at a checkbook and do anything with that, right? So everyone's going to be different there, too. I don't know if that's answering your question, but... Well, there, are there uh, medical interventions, medications that, uh, that can help the progress, or is it simply learning different behavior uh, mechanisms to help? Some of the um, 
results of fetal alcohol. For example, if they also have ADHD or they have depression or anxiety, those can be treated with medications. Treated, not cured. The fetal alcohol syndrome itself cannot. We call this, and forgive this question, this comes from really my own ignorance, but we call this fetal alcohol syndrome. But what about um, use of other substances? Does say the use of say chronic marijuana use or or cocaine use or uh, any other substance use? Does it does it have the same impact as alcohol? Uh, and if it does, it, does it manifest in the same way? How is it different? And like alcohol definitely causes more damage to the baby than any other drug. Um, the, as I said earlier, it's toxic to the brain. The clinical word is teratogenic. Marijuana, cocaine, heroin are not teratogenic. They have their own problems, right? But children that are exposed to those substances don't suffer the permanent lifelong physical or cognitive effects. So the risk of alcohol really far exceeds that of prenatal exposure to tobacco or other most illicit drugs. This is a question I, I probably should have asked up front when we were sort of introducing the topic, but what, what, do, what do your statistics tell you about how prevalent this is? Uh, how many children are born uh, let's just stay in the United States annually uh, that may have may fall somewhere on that spectrum of fetal alcohol. You know, again, excellent question. And the numbers that are reported are always reported, and this is likely underestimated. Okay, so I can give you the numbers that are reported, and you know, over 100, 125,000 children are exposed every year to alcohol, about 5,000 of those have significant enough damage to be fetal alcohol. So it's estimated like 0.5 to 2 or 3 per 1,000 live births. It outranks Down syndrome and probably still autism. Autism is being diagnosed more, so I don't know if that has stayed fetal alcohol more than autism, but it, it was several years ago. Interesting. It, it is uh, are fetal alcohol syndrome and autism similar in some ways? You know, there are some there are some behaviors that can be sim similar. For example, kids with autism may also have executive functioning compromises. They also have sensory integration compromises. Um, it's just from a different cause. Is there some risk that those two are misdiagnosed? No. I, I, I mean, I, I suppose it would be a little bit. Um, there, there could possibly be that risk. But the fact that we have the physical changes and, you know, clear diagnostic criteria, relatively clear diagnostic criteria for each, I think that that probably wouldn't happen that often. Maybe in the very beginning, Getting back to the to the numbers, is there any correlation to um, income level or uh, race or socioeconomic status or or anything like that that 
that uh, that points to, you know, maybe uh, efforts for prevention or uh, to target certain populations that may be more at risk than others? Such an important question because there is a unfounded common perception that it would be um, p- people who are socioeconomically disadvantaged, etc. But it crosses all spectrums, all spectrums. Um, I think we all know women and, and whatever that drink on the weekends. It's, it, it's everybody. This uh this may be an unfair question, but uh, what don't we know? What's still out there to to discover about uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, either the prevention of it, the uh, diagnosis of it, or the treatment of it? it? It is. It has to be about prevention. Um. We don't know how to get that word out enough such that it is believable, whether by the audience of, you know, parents or teenagers as they learn about, you know, if they were pregnant. Because um, a lot of people drink before they might not know for three weeks that they're pregnant and might be partying, right? So we want to educate people at the very beginning. So I don't think we do always a good enough job at that. The message about why take a chance I don't think is strong enough out there. Medications, perhaps, but it is damage to brain tissue. And we don't have an ability today to regenerate brain tissue. There is possibility of neural development so that you can take shortcuts or, you know, you don't, your brain doesn't communicate normally, say, through that corpus callosum from left to right Okay, but maybe there'll be a wraparound. That's how kids with early intervention, they might learn to compensate from different ways. Um, but there won't, I don't, I don't think that there will be a treatment you have to prevent. I think we also don't have the resources for kids as they get older. So I can use my family as an example. You know, we got a lot of help, resources, learning, um, I had so much information that I could prepare for the teachers in school about appropriate interventions that can help. We totally patted ourselves on the back for how we were able to keep their binders in order and learning, helping them learn those skills. When the structure is gone, and I can speak, uh, you know, with my own experience as well as some of the experience of my friends, our support group, what I'm seeing, when that structure is gone, I certainly did not feel adequately prepared to keep that. I thought we had done such a good job, they were going to be great. Well, they are great, but still struggling with certain things. Um, so I think that we don't have the resources. You know, I don't know if my one of my children will live independently. What do we do? That's what we don't know. Well, you brought up school. That's that's. That's very interesting to me. Are teachers taught to handle children who may have fetal alcohol syndrome? Not enough. And certainly when my guys were in school, they knew they did not know anything about it at all. And even when you're putting together an IEP, an individual education plan, 
what is it about fetal alcohol? And, it, and I really think, too, like I could advocate a little bit for my kids because I had some knowledge. I can only imagine parents that didn't get that same clinical intervention that we got. How do you even advocate to know what to recommend for them to do? But no, they, they don't. For the most part, I mean, I'm not going to say we've also had um, some really great experience with, with what is called differential learning, differentiated learning, so that the kids can learn the same material, but with perhaps a book that is at a lower level, but they're studying the same, you know, the pyramids in Egypt or whatever, modified tests to get to their ability. Um, interventions that you would do not just for fetal alcohol but for a lot of kids who have any kind of compromise or development you know some kids are um way too sensitive to noise okay, they need to have take their tests in a separate place other kids need noise they're going to take their tests wearing headphones with some music right so that has to be figured out individually but in terms of fetal alcohol as a diagnosis, this might be what's going on with this kid. No, I don't think it's out there. And I suppose even if it were, there's probably many, many children who are undiagnosed. Correct. And absolutely are, you know, maybe for lack of a of a better word, they're they're difficult children to have in the classroom or. Right. Uh, right. or difficult children to deal with at home or or difficult uh, employees in the workplace that uh, because uh, because they they may not be diagnosed they may not know right. what is happening with them or the people around may not know what's happening with them which you know we're, we're talking about children but it, it strikes me that that uh, an undiagnosed child grows up to be an undiagnosed adult who has to right. function has to function in a world where uh, some of those issues may really be problematic when, when we, if we looked at, at um, maybe secondary education or we look at holding a job or, as you mentioned earlier on, you know, handling a checkbook and just sort of the daily responsibilities of life, uh, you know, it's, it's beyond childhood. So there may be, uh, and certainly those of us that, uh, you know, Linda, maybe of our generation, uh, prior to fetal alcohol syndrome even being diagnosed, that are that may be uh, baby boomers or beyond that have struggled with their their whole life and uh, have been mislabeled either by professionals or by people in their life as being difficult or being slow or whatever the case may be. When we look at um, behavioral problems. They really can range from poor attention, distractibility, impulsivity, to lying and stealing. Um, I would guess, I've heard that many, but I don't have a statistic to back it up, of our prisoners are probably fetal alcohol. It's, I was just, behavior. I was just thinking that. I, I was going to, I was going to pose that question to you. Uh, how many children with fetal alcohol syndrome grow up to be substance abusers themselves? Uh, how many grow up to to become involved in a criminal justice system and and or end up in some sort of a correctional institute? Do, do you have any any sense of of whether or not someone who has fetal alcohol syndrome is more likely to abuse substances as an adult? Um, the reason they may be more likely 
likely to abuse substances is not because it's a hereditary or genetic thing because of the fetal alcohol. If alcoholism is inherited, they might have another chance because obviously they only got fetal alcohol because it was in the family, in the mom. There's also been a number of studies where they talk about what are the secondary disabilities. Um, mental health problems are huge. ADHD, anxiety, um, depression. Trouble with the law is very common. There are statistics that say, you know, any type of running can be 50% or more, right? They might get suspended from school. There's a lot of things like that that can happen. Inappropriate sexual behavior is also common. And it's part of the impulsivity because they don't have executive functioning. Um, I had a counselor once say, and she didn't, this is not statistical, this was just kind of her feeling, and she had a daughter also with fetal alcohol, actually a daughter and a son. Um, you're lucky if you get away with one pregnancy and one jail time. Now, we've had neither, but, you know, that's, yeah, that can happen. This, when you think about it in, in those terms, it seems overwhelming. Let me, let me ask you this. If, where would somebody go? if they wanted to learn more about this, if they were questioning either, you know, for themselves or for a loved one or just wanted to learn more about fetal alcohol syndrome, where, where would you direct them uh, for resources? If I were going to, um, if I had a child that I wondered about, I would go to a specialist. So I would go to someone that um, is a specialist in fetal alcohol. Other than that, you know, there's there's a lot of research from the NIH, different source books. There's books written by kids with fetal alcohol and parents of children with fetal alcohol that are really good and helpful for a family to sit down and work through. Um, there's books about parenting this tough start child, as they call it, about networking, about making learning happen with your children. So there's a lot of literature out there. And when you say NIH, you refer to the National Institute of Health? Correct. And I, I would imagine that they have resources online that people could find free of charge? And a lot of organizations do. And, for example, there's places you can go to look at, um, you know, strategies perhaps for a preschool ager, strategies for a teenager, whatever. Linda, this has been fascinating to me. I, I'm sure we could probably talk uh, for for quite a quite a while longer about this. But um, I want to thank you for taking the time. This has been very instructive to me, and I think it'll be instructive to anyone who listens to this. I, I think it's it's very courageous of you to come forward and talk about uh, the experiences that you've had. Well, I'm happy to do that because we all need support and we all need to know, share ideas. This might work. This might work. I have a support group of moms. Um, there are five of us that get together fairly regularly and someone knows this or that and we just support each other and learn from each other. And obviously the prevention piece is so important, so we have to understand it. And for me, I also feel so strongly that kids did not make this choice. They're developmental delayed. They have learning disabilities, attention disorders, social, emotional, behavioral problems. They didn't choose it. Prevention is so important. 
um, in learning about it. Jim, earlier we talked and I said I would look for, I wanted to share with you, if I can, a couple quotes. One is actually from the Bible, Judges 13, verses 3 to 4. You shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore beware and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. Aristotle said, quote, foolish, drunken, or hair-brained women often bring forth children like unto themselves. Obviously, the drunken part is the part that we focus on with fetal alcohol, so it has been around. That is very interesting. That goes back a long way. So, it goes back a long way. You know, while maybe there wasn't a name for it, uh, the knowledge certainly was there. I want to sort Results were obvious, but it wasn't named yet. I want to circle back to something you said just a minute ago. You said that the kids didn't choose this, and I think that's an excellent point. The kids didn't choose this, and it's difficult enough to be a young child and to be a teenager and to navigate through that world. And I suppose for these kids to have the knowledge they have about their situation, to 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 have that diagnosis or to have that behavior and, and to have to go through that world and face, uh, you know, the difficulty that, that could come with with being made fun of or being bullied. Uh, it's got to be it's got to be very, very difficult. It's difficult, I think, under optimal circumstances and to have a, a fetal alcohol syndrome diagnosis. And uh, it, it just must be extremely difficult for these children. a lot of challenges um, behaviorally, cognitively, etc. The whole, the environment of differentiated learning becomes so critical and appreciating everybody's unique differences becomes so critical. You used a word earlier in our conversation about overwhelming. And sometimes it is just so overwhelming for them as well as for the families, right? Like what do we do to help? These are amazing kids. How can we help? And it's also really hard, if, if I can say something about, you know, being the parent. Obviously, we want our kids to be as successful as possible. A real challenge, and certainly it was for me, is you don't want to set the bar too high, right? Because they won't be successful. They can't achieve. There's damage to the brain. But you don't want to set it too low because you want them to function at their maximum. And it's not always easy to know where that is. But one of the things that kind of guided me was um, I, I once heard someone speak, and she just she said, meet them where they are, and then you can advance from there. And I really use that as a guideline for as much as I can, um, you know, when we're trying to figure stuff out. Linda, thank you again so much for your time. If individuals uh, listen to this podcast and, and, they, and they want to get more information, I think we can direct them uh, maybe to the uh, National Institute of Health online. Maybe that's a, a good starting point for them. I think this uh, podcast that we're doing, and I'm hoping that this podcast will, will uh, generate a conversation, and I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we at ADE can be some resource for them, and it's certainly a big part of that. I just want to tell you again how much I appreciate your time. Happy to do it. Thanks. Okay. Take care, Linda. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ADE Spotlight Podcast. 
I hope you found it insightful. If you have any comments, suggestions for future topics, or would like to be featured in an upcoming episode, please let us know. You may reach us by email at support at adencorp.com.